Hello, I'm Jacob Kruger, and this is the Write Your Screenplay Podcast. This week, we're going to be talking about The Last of Us, the HBO series by Craig Mazin and Neil Druckmann. For the last couple of episodes, I've been really hammering on this idea that the engine of your TV show is designed to make each episode feel both the same and also different. But then we get to episode three of The Last of Us, and what just happened? It just feels different and different. So what does that say about the TV series engine of The Last of Us, and why does it actually work? We are going to have such a fun ride today. We're going to be talking about some of the variations that you can pull off within the engine of a TV show and some of the ways that we can start to push against expectations while still keeping our series engine intact. Also, we're going to be talking about idea creation, how to take a seen it before idea like a zombie apocalypse, a genre idea, and transform it into something that feels new and fresh whether that's a TV series or a video game, or in the case of The Last of Us, both. Now, I do want to warn you, there are going to be some spoilers of episodes one, two, and three in this podcast. I promise I'm not going to spoil anything beyond episode three. So if you're up to episode three, you are set. But if you are not up to episode three, what are you doing? (laughs) Turn off this podcast, go watch the show, and then come back to us. You're going to get so much more value out of our conversation here if you've seen the show, and it is really worth watching. Also, note that I am not an expert in the video games. In fact, I have never played them. So all of the analysis you're about to hear about the changes between the game and the show, those are all based on research. So if I've gotten anything wrong, or if there are any ideas that can be deepened by those of you who are experts in the game, please let me know in the comments. I would really love to hear your thoughts. So let's start by talking about the premise of The Last of Us. This is such a hard premise to pull off, and it's really hard because of its simplicity. How many zombie movies have we seen? How many zombie series have we seen? How many zombie video games for that matter? How do you walk into the post-apocalyptic genre and outdo The Walking Dead? Which, by the way, not only pre-existed the show, but also pre-existed the game. One of the constants of being a writer, any kind of writer, a screenwriter, a novelist, a video game writer, a TV writer, a playwright, it's always being concerned that our ideas aren't good enough. We're afraid it's derivative. We're afraid it's been done too many times before. We're afraid it's cliche. Well, what's been done more than zombies? On the surface, it would seem like making another zombie series is a pretty bad idea, not only for a TV series, but even for a game. And the truth is, had these writers been less experienced or had they gotten some feedback from some inexperienced coverage reader? they might have depressed themselves out of it. Do we really need another post-apocalyptic zombie series? To make matters even more challenging, the foundational structure of the show is one that we've seen before. In other shows, in games, in novels, it's basically Cormac McCarthy's Pulitzer Prize-winning book, The Road, set in a zombie world. And even The Road is derived from Stephen King's The Stand. I mean, we can see elements that carry through all three of these pieces. The apocalyptic pandemic and the traveling survivors searching for somewhere safe. So 
looking at The Last of Us as a TV series and as a game, we have a premise that someone who only took a surface look would tell you is doomed. The idea just isn't good enough. We've seen this premise a million times before. After the zombie apocalypse, a father and a, we'll put it in quotes, daughter, traveled together and tried to survive in a cruel world while watching civilization rebuilt. Hmm, sounds pretty familiar, right? Yet, The Last of Us franchise has been hugely successful, not only as a game, but also as a TV series. And I'm not just talking commercially. I'm also talking artistically. So why does it work? Why has this idea, which seems on the surface like it's built entirely from elements that have been done to death, why has it captured the attention and the passion and the emotions of audiences in such a huge and unexpected way? Well, part of it is that Craig Mazin and Neil Druckmann are brilliant. But here's the good news. It's a brilliance that any screenwriter can harness. You take an idea that feels like it's been done to death. And all you have to do is be willing to push on it. You push on it and you push on it and you push on it until that idea transforms itself into something new and fresh and original. And so that's what we're going to be talking about how to do today. If The Last of Us teaches us anything, it teaches us that you can create a fantastically engaging story, even if on the surface it seems like your idea isn't good enough. But you do have to be willing to push. A word on this. This is probably the most common feeling that writers have. My idea isn't good enough. So many writers, we sit around thinking, oh, I'd really like to write it, but it's been done. I'd really like to write it, but I don't have the right idea. I really want to do something, but I haven't gotten it perfect yet. And when we do this, we're stopping before we can even start. And we're doing all of that because of a misconception. The most important part of coming up with an idea is not having an original idea. No idea is really all that original in its initial form, in its elevator pitch. Ideas become original as you push on them. The most important part of coming up with an idea is your passion for it, your drive for it, your desire for it. The most important part of coming up with an idea is your connection to something real, something that matters to you. And don't worry, if you're having trouble accessing that connection, you find it in the same way. You take the idea you've got and you push on it until you feel something. The first thing you want to do when you're working on an idea that's been done is to dial in and get more specific. The Last of Us gives its zombies this treatment in such an effective way, not only in the video game, but also in the series. One of the ways you can get more specific is by looking at other similar stories and searching for the holes, searching for the problems. What does everybody do in this genre that just isn't that interesting? What is taken for granted in this kind of story? How can you push on that to create something new? The first little twist that the writers give this zombie project is to root it in some science that feels really real. The Last of Us takes the science that made the video game unique and it really takes it to the next level. So we're starting with episode one of The Last of Us, right? But instead of starting where the game starts, 
we begin with some scientists. It's the 1960s, and they're talking about something you might have heard of before, cordyceps, the fungus that takes over the minds of ants and basically turns them into zombies that spread its spores. And everything is going to grow from there. What if instead of rooting the zombie apocalypse in traditional zombie mythology or just short-handling where it all came from so we can get to the brain-eating, what if we rooted it in some science that feels real? And then they went even further. How do we connect this to something that's real for us, something that matters? Well, they took this very real fungus that exists in the game, and what if we connected it to global warming? What if we made it just another threat that's been around forever, that everyone's been talking about for 60 years, but no one's paying attention to? The earth warms up, we're told, and these fungi mutate. Up until now, we're told, they only had the ability to infect ants. But in a warmer climate, what if they could take over the minds and bodies of people? So the first choice that makes The Last of Us a special kind of zombie show is rooting the premise in something that feels like real science, something that feels terrifyingly possible, and something that seems terrifyingly resonant with what we've all just been through, and potentially what we're about to go through with global warming. As in The Last of Us video game, that little scientific twist on the nature of the zombies is also where all the world building comes from. We know that a zombie show, a post-apocalyptic show, is going to be about world building. But what works about The Last of Us is that that world building grows organically out of that one little twist. We are in the world of fungi. And that makes the kinds of zombies that we're going to meet more terrifying. I'm talking about the mushrooms growing out of the zombie bodies and faces. Right, These are visually stunning, unique images that we have never seen before. Of course, when you get down to it, it's just a zombie, but this is a fungal zombie, so it looks and it feels different. And the idea of a zombie created by cordyceps of the infected becomes even more exciting the more the writers push on it. What other crazy, scary things can fungi do? What kinds of creatures might they evolve into? How can they communicate through root systems like plants? How does this make our zombies faster, stronger, harder to kill? How does it make it more terrifying than other zombies? What are the most horrifying images that we can create based on this cordyceps idea? The images we've never seen in a video game or in a TV series. We also have a problem that needs to get solved. You see, in the video game, people are infected through spores in the air, which is perfectly reasonable and probably is fun in a game. But in a show, covering the bottom half of an actor's face with a mask is taking away one of their primary tools, one of the primary tools of their craft. Just like in the real world, it's so much harder to connect when we can't see somebody's micro-expressions. And in performance, that problem is exponential. Furthermore, sure, this piece is metaphorically about COVID and global warming, but you push on it too hard visually and we might lose the fun. It might resonate a little bit too much with what we've just been through. But the cool thing is that problems like this are also a way to find hook. Again, 
the writers do this by pushing on the cordyceps idea, right? The fungal idea of these zombies. And they find this wonderfully unique answer. Something visually stunning, again, that we've never seen before. Instead of infecting through spores, the zombies infect mouth to mouth through horrifying images of fungi growing out of one mouth and into another. This image, at least for me, was one of the most disturbing in the series. And it all grows out of saying yes and, yes and to what is our little hook about our zombies. Yes and not only to what's beautiful, but how do we solve the problems all by pushing on one simple idea. This is also where the world building of The Last of Us grows from. Everybody knows you got to do world building when you make a zombie apocalypse movie. But in this world, the world building is all about plants. It's a post-apocalyptic world where there are plants literally growing out of everything and where even the remains of bodies are covered in fungi. So many post-apocalyptic shows and movies are going to build their world around the concrete jungles, the remains of what's left of our modern world. But in this world, we're watching fungi and other plant life crowding into our space, taking over everything in visually spectacular ways. So much of what makes the world of The Last of Us work just grows out of this little simple twist, this little push on the same idea. The writers once again are yes ending this one little detail, this one little twist in a very traditional genre. And you can see the way it elevates every aspect of their piece. And look, these are not the first people to do this. My friend Jim Hart, for example, takes a similar approach with his adaptation of Bram Stoker's Dracula, a film that I truly love. Jim basically said to himself, okay, Dracula has been told the same way a thousand times. But what if Dracula was actually a love story? And there was a deep personal reason why Jim wanted to tell that story, a personal connection he felt to that take. And he gives that traditional horror movie this tiny little twist, and suddenly it becomes something breathtaking, something fresh, something new. So if you feel like you're in a world that's been explored before, look for where the holes are. Look for the thing that everybody does the same way. Look for the thing that doesn't feel realistic and ask yourself, okay, what if I got more specific? What if I looked at that in a slightly different way? What if I gave that a little twist? Then you start to yes and, to respond, to mirror from there, and suddenly you've got a hook to your writing. You've elevated your take on the genre. Yeah, we've seen a million post-apocalyptic worlds, but we haven't seen the world of The Last of Us. Yes, we've seen a million kinds of zombies, but we haven't seen the zombies of The Last of Us. We haven't seen the infected. This is the beginning of taking an idea that we've seen before and transforming it into something fresh. This is the beginning of writing within a genre. The next way to take a common premise and turn it into something special is by playing with theme. You could see this so clearly in The Last of Us. Yes, we have a fantastic, real-feeling, scientifically-based zombie apocalypse world. But that is really just the background for a very human and relatable story. Now, just to be clear, at the recording of this podcast, we are up to episode six of The Last of Us. 
I won't be spoiling anything past episode three, but not all of the episodes are out yet. So I feel pretty safe in saying I know the theme based on experience, but until the full series is released, it is possible that the writers might still surprise me. But from the first six episodes, and certainly the three episodes that we are talking about today, there is a pretty clear theme emerging. That theme is connection. That theme is learning to care for somebody else. So we've got Joel the Pedro Pascal character. Joel is a normal guy, a contractor. He loves his brother. He loves his daughter, Sarah. And all the guy wants in episode one is to finish his construction project. We meet him on his birthday and he's in a little bit of an emotional bind. He loves the hell out of his daughter and she desperately wants to spend his birthday with him. But he's got to work a double shift. He's got to get his job finished. And that means he's not going to be home to celebrate with her. The things that matter to Joel, things that matter to us, right? He's like us. He cares about his work. He cares about his daughter. He's torn between the two of them. He's a guy who cares about others, but he's drawn away from them sometimes by things that feel really important in our world, just like we are. Even though in the world that we know is coming, those things aren't going to be important at all. The show makes such an interesting choice from here. The show also makes such an interesting choice in the first episode. The camera for the entire episode is almost exclusively on Sarah. It's almost exclusively on Joel's daughter. And that is such a surprising choice because as a brand new audience, unless we know the video game, we're going to think she's the main character. We're going to think Sarah is the thread that this story is going to be built around. She's the one we're falling in love with, this very young girl at the center of an apocalypse we know is coming. This sweet girl who cares about her elderly neighbors, who cares about her father, but doesn't see as much of him as she'd like. We're meeting a beautiful, caring, connected human being who has no idea what's coming for her. And we know what's going to happen. We're going to watch her world fall apart and watch her go on an epic journey through a zombie apocalypse. But that's not what happens. Instead, by the end of the episode, the unthinkable happens. This girl that we've been watching, that we've been falling in love with, that we've been planning to spend a series with, well, she's brutally murdered. And it's only then we realize she's not the main character. She's gone. It's actually her father the guy who's been present in her life, but has been mostly off-camera working. He's our main character, Joel. Or at least he seems to be. Watching episode one, we are certain that we're going to be watching this father-daughter story. Instead, we're left with just a grieving father whose connections with other people have been ripped away by the literal end of the world. And what's happening here is so cool. You see, we've been promised this father-daughter story and it's been ripped away from us. But we also know that a TV pilot's got to work as a blueprint for the rest of the series. We have been promised a father-daughter story and somehow the series has to deliver it or we're going to feel ripped off. And the story is going to deliver it, but it is not going to deliver it in the way that we expected. This theme of connections, 
of losing people you never thought you could lose is part of the engine of The Last of Us. You see, our genre expectations as an audience have already been broken. The death of Joel's daughter, Sarah, the death of Sarah, it tells it that in this series, anyone can die. Even the character you think is the main character can die. This puts us in exactly the position that Joel is in. The foundation of our world has been pulled out from under us. Our primary connection to the world of The Last of Us has been severed. The audience's experience and the character's experience are lining up. The audience's experience mirroring Joel's experience, being dropped into the world of these characters and experiencing it the way that they do is another primary part of the engine of The Last of Us. One of the things that you are actually going to see in each of the first six episodes of The Last of Us is that at the end of each episode, a character is going to die. Specifically, a character you never, ever imagined would die is going to die. In each episode, the writers are going to make you fall in love with a character that you think is going to be part of the primary cast. And in a traditional TV series, they would be. They're going to do exactly what they did in the pilot, making you fall in love with Sarah and then taking it away. And the thing is, we're used to watching these shows. We're used to watching communities build around our main characters in this genre, right? That's what happens in these kinds of post-apocalyptic shows. We're waiting to watch the society rebuild. We're waiting to watch the group grow around them. In each episode, as a primary part of the engine, at least so far, although I do have a feeling they're going to start to play with our expectations a little bit, what the writers do is they make you fall in love with the character. They set it up so you feel safe, that this one is clearly going to be part of the cast. You can invest in them. And then they kill that character off. They do this because it puts us in Joel's and eventually in Ellie's shoes. It shows us the power of the apocalypse and how impossible it is to build any kind of foundation in a world where you can literally lose anyone at any time. Every single death is going to drive the impossibility of connecting with other people home, not only for the characters, but also for the audience. It's going to do so for the audience and the characters at the same time by putting us in their experience. When we meet Joel again 20 years later in The Last of Us Episode 2, his ability to connect with other people has been severed by the death of his daughter. The man we're meeting now is a mercenary. He's out for himself Sure, he has a partner, Tess, who you can sense he probably loves. But the two of them are pretty frank about being mercenaries. They hold each other and the world at arm's length. Joel and Tess do not have connections to other human beings. Love isn't really a possibility for them the way it was in the past. We're watching a man who has the chance to connect, but who's afraid to do so because he's lost so much. He's lost his brother, who he's desperate to get back to. He's lost his world, but he's also lost his daughter. And in the wake of losing her, he's having trouble caring about human beings like he used to. In episode two, Joel's going to be charged with carrying this girl, Ellie, who of course may be the hope for civilization, to an underground organization called the Fireflies. 
Now, of course, we've seen this before too, right? This is Children of Men, the story of one person who might be the cure to the terrible apocalypse and the mission to transport them to help. But what makes The Last of Us work is that it's actually built around their relationship. It's the story of a man who does not want to connect, connecting again despite himself. Instead of watching society reforming like we usually see in these shows, we're watching the story of connection reforming in the wake of a personal apocalypse. That theme of connection is even carried through with the fungi. The infected are actually connected through a root system. So in a way, they're connected in ways that the human beings are not. They've quite literally found their roots by being taken over by this fungus. You can see the design of the infected is actually just another riff on that theme of connection and disconnection. And although we won't know for sure into the finale, what I believe we're really watching in The Last of Us is the story of people finding their roots again in each other. And when you realize that, you understand that The Last of Us is not really about the zombies. The Last of Us is really about how hard it is to love and trust in the wake of loss. And that is what makes the show universal. You see, most of us are never going to live through a zombie apocalypse. But all of us are going to live through loss. And what's beautiful about this show is that we're not in some phony baloney zombie world. We're in an emotionally truthful world. We're in a metaphor for our own real lived experience. We get to the end of episode two of The Last of Us, and again, we think we know what we're watching. We're watching the story of a family, right? We have that tough-as-nails teenager who thinks she knows everything even though she was born in a world that's already ended. And by the way, her blood might be the salvation for the world. And we have mom and dad who don't want to be mom and dad who think they're just mercenaries and this is just another job. It looks like we're just watching The Mandalorian all over again, which makes sense considering that Pedro Pascal is cast as the main character. We're ready to watch that tough-as-nails Mandalorian fall in love with cute baby Yoda. Tough Mandalorian, cute baby Yoda all over again, just like I talked about on my Mandalorian podcast way back then. We think we're watching the same thing here, a family developing in the wreckage of humanity. But that is not what we're watching. The engine of the pilot replicates at the end of The Last of Us Episode 2 and tears everything out from under us all over again. Tess dies. Once again, we are put in the position of the main character. The thing that we didn't think could happen has happened. And once again, Joel's ability to connect has been shattered. The family has been shattered by the apocalypse. So we're rebuilding this human emotional connection all over again after a second tragedy has torn it apart. Of course, there is another element, a far more commercial element that also threads us through The Last of Us. It has really badass zombies. 
in The Last of Us, there are no fantasies of mowing through legions of shuffling corpses. Even a single zombie is a deadly threat. They don't move like all their muscles are gone or lose bits as they walk. The zombies in The Last of Us are fast, deadly, and hard to escape. The infected are as horrifying as they are beautifully designed. The threat is real. And every time we think Joel's found a solution, everything goes wrong. The death toll of these zombies is huge from moment one. Even the bad guys get killed. Everyone's dying all the time. Every time there's something to hope for, some place of safety, it goes wrong. Joel needs a car battery. The guy who's supposed to sell it to him scams him. He needs to get Ellie to the Fireflies. The Fireflies are all dead. Nothing ever works for this main character. Which, by the way, is a trick you can use on pretty much any show and pretty much any movie. The worst thing that could possibly happen needs to happen. And for two episodes, it goes just like that. And we're starting to get the pattern. In episode two, our heroes barely defeat just a couple of zombies. These are blind clickers in a museum. It's nearly impossible for these two hardened mercenaries and the girl they're traveling with to beat a couple of zombies who can't even see them. And defeating them gets one of them, Tess, killed. Just defeating the clickers in the museum is nearly impossible. And then we find out that they're actually connected through a root system. What? That thousands of these things could come at you all at once if the swarm finds out you're there? We are in a world where these characters, as badass as they are, are totally outmatched. So, by the end of episode two, a savvy audience has recognized the pattern. We get what's going to happen in this show. We know what's coming in episode three. We have this tough-as-nails guy who doesn't want to connect and this tough-as-nails girl who also doesn't want to connect, and we're going to watch them connect. We're going to watch them connect while they lose all the people around them. And every plan to get Ellie to safety is going to fail. And increasingly terrifying zombies are going to come out around every corner in greater and greater numbers, right? Episode after episode. No, that's not what's going to happen. By the end of episode two of The Last of Us, we think we have the engine down. And we get to episode three. And where the hell are we? There are no infected in episode three. There are no zombies. What we're going to watch instead is a love story between two men. In the video game, the focus is all on Joel's character. And Bill and Frank's love story all is just exposition. But in The Last of Us, the series, the writers make an unexpected change and they allow it to occur as part of the show's trajectory. So we're in episode three, and first we meet Bill, the Nick Offerman character. He's a survivalist. He's the kind of guy who later admits he was happy when the apocalypse happened. He doesn't like people. He's been preparing for this his whole life. And when all the human beings get swept out of his neighborhood, he's 100% prepared. He's got guns. He's got supplies. He's got Home Depots to raid. He's got a plan. It goes off without a hitch. And he builds himself this little personal paradise. And it is so much fun to watch. In some ways, it's like a dramatic version of the first episode of The Last Man on Earth. 
where we watch a guy find his own personal heaven inside of an apocalypse. And we're thinking, where are we? How is this connected to the engine? Aren't we supposed to be watching a guy who doesn't want to connect and a young girl who doesn't want to connect deal with increasingly horrifying zombies? We are in a completely different tonal world. But Bill's story does tie to the show's engine thematically. What we're watching in episode three is something gorgeous blooming in the apocalypse. We watch Bill build his lonely little paradise. And then another man comes into his world after four years of isolation. Bill meets Frank. Actually, he catches Frank in one of his traps. And Bill does not want Frank and Bill does not want human connection, but Frank forces his way into Bill's heart. Frank forces Bill to reveal his own vulnerability. Bill's gay, but he's never been with a man before. And he's afraid to connect. But he ends up falling for Frank anyway. Frank forces Bill to find his way into love. A beautiful love story blooms in the apocalypse. What results is a story of connection that doesn't get torn away. A story of hope. So how does this fit into the engine of the show? This is like a funny mirror reflection of the show we've been watching. A version where the story of connection that we're constantly denied with Joel and Ellie comes true. This is another kind of family story about a person who's afraid of human connection, finding that connection, finding love, finding something beautiful in a world where that feels so impossible, where the only thing that matters is survival. Thematically, it's a taste of what we've been denied so far, and probably it's a taste of where we're going. So we understand how this unexpected love story fits thematically, but how the hell does it fit the engine of the series? As we've watched the love story between Bill and Frank Bloom, as a smart audience, a part of us has got to be asking ourselves, how is this little love story going to fit in with the story we've been watching with Joel and Ellie? And then this amazing thing happens. Joel shows up, but it's not with Ellie. It's with Tess. Joel and Tess show up in the Bill and Frank story. And all of a sudden we get our bearings as an audience. Oh, we're in the past when Tess was still alive. This is how their little smuggling operation actually started. Bill and Frank are the allies they're smuggling with. In fact, these are probably the people who are playing the 80s warning music over the radio in episode one. If you listen to my podcast on WandaVision, you can see how that limited series did the same thing. In each episode, it built something a little different, but each story connected in tiny ways back to the overarching story. Well, The Last of Us uses that same trick here. And now that we know where we are, Joel comes in and he warns Bill and Frank, there are going to be raiders. And we go, oh, okay, this is what we've been waiting for. Time for some badass fight sequences. And of course there are. These are the familiar elements of the engine that we were looking for getting introduced back into the episode. We're going to have some badass fight sequences. 
And when Bill gets shot, we know what's going to happen. We've been here before for two episodes. We get the engine. We're back on familiar ground. We know Bill's going to die. And we are going to have to watch the end of this tragic love story. We figure this is just like episode one where Joel lost his daughter. Frank's going to lose Bill. But he isn't. If you balance the familiar elements of a TV series engine right, what's amazing is that you can completely change how those elements are used to the surprise and the delight of your audience. And you can do so without making the audience feel so unmoored that they stop watching if you know what you're doing. Once you establish your engine, once you establish the pattern, you can start to play with it. You can subvert the audience's expectations or build pressure between what we know is coming and what's actually happening. Craig Mazin and Neil Druckmann do a brilliant job with this little twist. Because we, as an audience, we're watching Bill die. And we're figuring that we know what's going to happen next. But then, cut to the future, and we realize Bill lived through being shot. But now Frank is sick. At this point, we once again figure that we understand the engine. So we're writing a new story in our heads as the audience. We're telling ourselves a new story about what's going to happen next. Bill's going to lose Frank, right? Oh, that's the person who's not allowed to die who's going to die. We know Joel is on his way with Ellie and we know poor Bill is going to really need the companionship after losing his lover and he's going to join the team right now. Okay, episode three, that's when the team's going to start to form. That's when we're going to start to get our group. They're going to have this clever survivalist team member who's going to be part of the family unit that gets built because that's what happens in zombie movies. But instead, what happens in The Last of Us is yet another twist on our expectations that once again both subverts and supports the series engine that's been established. Frank decides he doesn't want to live in pain anymore and he plans his suicide. If you're really familiar with how TV is built and you happen to be watching The Last of Us, you realize by this point that the death that comes at the end has got to be unexpected. The engine of The Last of Us always ends with the surprise death of someone you care about. So it can't be Frank because we can see that coming a mile off. In some way, we're telling ourselves it has to be Bill. But either way, we are braced for something coming next. If we figured out that piece of the engine, we're wondering how Bill is going to die. And if we haven't, if we're more naive viewers, we're waiting to watch him lose Frank. Either way, there is a ton of emotional tension built out of the variations on the patterns established in the first two episodes. Frank has a specific, beautiful day planned out for his last day on Earth. And at the end of it, he wants Bill to crush up a bunch of pills and put them in his wine. Frank's going to drink his last glass of wine and then be carried off by Bill to the bedroom to die. We watch Bill crush up the pills and put them into the wine, and what we're expecting, if we really understand the engine, is for Bill to put the pills in his own glass. But he doesn't. 
And we might be thinking at this point, oh, wow, he's really just going to watch Frank die. Until Bill reveals to Frank that he's actually poisoned the whole bottle. And he tells Frank he's going to die too. And they have this moment that's so the last of us, that's so beautiful and terrifying and horrible and romantic. Frank is so angry, but it's also such a romantic thing to do that he can't stay angry. So Bill and Frank go to the bedroom to die together. And just like that, the engine of The Last of Us has replicated again. Every episode is going to end with someone dying that cannot die. The character that in these kinds of stories usually doesn't die. These kinds of stories are usually about civilization being created again in the wake of an apocalypse. So you usually have that slow buildup of people surviving, but not The Last of Us. At the end of episode three, Joel and Ellie finally show up just a tiny little bit too late. And finding Bill and Frank dead is yet another blow against Joel's ability to care about people. He just cannot hold on to anyone that he is connected to. As you can see from The Last of Us, the engine of a TV show is flexible, but you have to be careful how you flex it. You've got to establish a pattern before you break it. And you have to break your pattern in a way that fits what you're working with. This is true of a lot of shows, not just The Last of Us. Look at Orange is the New Black, for example. It started and we were mostly zeroed in on Piper, the rich white girl in prison. But as the seasons progressed, the camera shifted. It started to follow other characters around the prison and even into the outside world. That camera shift opened up the scope of the show until it was about more than just Piper until we could see it was really about the story of these underrepresented women, women that we've really never seen before in a TV show. Once that pattern was set and once the expectations were built, that was when the engine could shift and open up to let more stories in. Now, of course, this is not true for every show. If you watch a show like Dead to Me, the engine is fixed. That show works exactly the same way every time, and there are plenty of others like it. You can choose to run your show like a well-oiled machine, like Dead to Me or 30 Rock or The Wire. Or you can choose what Craig Mazin and Neil Druckmann chose. To set your pattern and then start to play with it. To set the expectations and then start to undermine them. It's our expectations of zombies showing up that creates the stakes in episode three. Even though this expectation is never going to be fulfilled. The pattern set up from the initial two episodes creates pressure for the audience. We're just waiting for catastrophe to strike, but it doesn't strike the way we expected. Part of what makes the surprising beauty of Bill and Frank's little apocalyptic romance feel so fragile and so wonderful is the expectation that zombies are coming at any moment. And you can see what a wonderful surprise it is that the zombies never do show up. The episode works without even a single zombie. Not just because we feel pressure from the pattern of the first two episodes. And not just because we do get the action sequences that we expected with the Raiders. But also because what really ties each episode together is not zombies. Zombies.
It's not the zombies. It's not the infected that we're actually watching in The Last of Us. Just like it's not the monsters in a quiet place. It's the horror of a family that can't communicate that makes that movie work. In other words, it's theme. Theme is the glue that ties The Last of Us together through all its tonal variations and surprises, just like it's going to be the glue that ties your show together. The truth is, when you're playing with an engine, you're playing with variations on a theme. Theme is the secret writer's tool. Your producer does not understand how theme works. Engine is the commercial side of that tool, a tool that the producers are going to be much more aware of and that even some audience members will be aware of. Oh, I get it. This kind of thing always happens. I can't wait to see how it happens in the next episode. The engine of a TV show is a set of familiar elements that you're using to create the same feeling in a different way. But theme is what you use to tie it all together. As long as you're on theme, as long as you've established a pattern, sometimes you can start to undermine that pattern with new elements that connect back to the same theme. And here's what I want to leave you with. Even working in genre, you can get away with almost anything. Even if someone, even me, tells you every episode has to feel the same but different, I want you to remember, you're an artist. Your job is to understand the rules, but also to break them. Whenever somebody tells you it must be this way, know that they are lying to you. It is helpful for every episode to feel the same but different because the audience comes to a TV show with certain expectations. And if you deny the audience their expectations, you're likely going to lose them. However, if you deepen those expectations and play with them to make them more complex, you can get away with nearly anything. If you feed the genre monster at a level that we haven't seen before in two incredible episodes then you can get away with your little flower blooming in the desert, your little love story in the ruins of the apocalypse. If you find some simple ways to thread those genre elements that we're coming back for through that love story, you can get away with almost anything. So yes, the easiest way to build a series is with a strong engine where every episode feels the same but different. But really, you build a series from your theme and from your heart. So if you want to experiment, if you want to push against your engine, if you want to establish a pattern and then break it, the question is not, can I? The question is, how? How do I? How do I bring my audience who came in expecting certain things? How do I bring them along for the ride while I explore something that they weren't expecting? And the answer is almost always the same. You do it by giving the audience more than they were expecting. You deepen, you complicate the patterns, and you use your theme to tie everything beautifully together. I hope that you enjoyed this podcast. If you're getting a lot out of it, well, come study with me. I have online classes for writers of all different levels, including a ProTrack mentorship program that pairs you one-on-one with a professional writer who will read every page you write and mentor you throughout your entire 
career. I have master classes, foundation classes in TV writing and screenwriting, and so much more. So come check it out at writeyourscreenplay.com.